a long time ago on a spinner rack far, far away. The Comic Book Time Machine, episode 83, part of Ben's Marvel's Cosmic Comics series. Covering Marvel's licensed sci-fi comic books, cover date July 1978. This episode that includes Star Wars, number 13, Godzilla, number 12, Human Fly, number 11, Man from Atlantis, number 6, John Carter, Warlord of Mars, number 14, and a quick look at Machine Man, number 4, and Devil Dinosaur, number 4. Hello, I'm Ben, Ben Avery. I am a comic book time traveler, and you are now listening to another episode of The Comic Book Time Machine Presents Marvel's Cosmic Comics, and this time we are looking at the comic books that Marvel published with a cover date of July 1978. These are comics that are not just part of the Marvel Comics pantheon of publishing Uh, These are comics that Marvel uh, secured the rights to publish from other places. And for the most part, they are pretty sci-fi dominated. There is some fantasy obviously involved when you're talking about something like Star Wars. But this is what this show does. We are taking the time to go month by month through what Marvel is publishing. So this month we are taking a look at Star Wars number 13. We're taking a look at John Carter, Warlord of Mars number 14. We're taking a look at Godzilla King of the Monsters, number 12. We're taking a look at the Human Fly issue, number 11, I believe. Going to get out my list because this is how this works, is I go back in time um, to a comic book spinner rack that's at some sort of gas station or, uh, as I've mentioned before, stoppy shoppy. Um, That's where I used to get my comic books, that and uh, the local grocery store. And... On the shelf, I find these comics for 35 cents. I find uh, Man from Atlantis, number six. Uh, what else is there? I think that's it. And then also we'll be taking a look at Machine Man and and Devil Dinosaur later on at the end. But uh, yeah, this is how it works. Now, you know, there's the whole time travel metaphor thing. And the way it really works is I'm pulling out a, a plastic comic book sleeve and inside are the individual issues that I have. And I also have a couple uh, trade paperbacks for this uh, particular episode, for this particular month, I should say. Uh, Godzilla number 12 is not going to be read in black and white. It is going to be read in full color because my friend Stephen McDonald from over at Strangers and Aliens, he's my co-host over there at that podcast, he sent me, uh, I think I mentioned this before, two copies of Godzilla that he had, I think, from his personal collection, probably that he purchased at the time. Uh, one of them was issue number three, issue number three of Godzilla being the one with champions, Hercules and Angel and Iceman fighting Godzilla. That's the one with a full page splash of Hercules flipping Godzilla. Well, this issue of Godzilla, issue number 12, I actually have again in color because he sent that to me and uh, I can't wait to get into that. So that's what we're doing. There's no special weird things for this month. No uh, movie adaptations or anything like that. There are some weird things that they did publish, but they weren't things that I was interested in covering 
for this round. Uh, and we'll get into that when we get into Ben's bullpen bulletin later on, which is when I talk about the the ads and the the uh, text material that that Marvel publishes in their comics. So for now, we're taking a look uh, in this next segment at Star Wars issue number 13. And I have to say, having already read it, I'm pretty excited. I actually have to say I read some of these when I was not uh, able to record about them yet. And so normally I take them out of the sleeve and read them and record about them right after I've read them. I've read more than half of these issues while I was on vacation in Canada and I didn't have access to my recording materials. And I have to say, um, uh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil too much. I'm just going to say there's some real treats and even the bad just might be good. Although I haven't read them all. So there may be some bad to come anyway, good or bad. I hope you're here. Uh, and we'll have some fun as you are here with me. I know I had some fun doing the reading that I did. And I especially had fun reading this upcoming segment, uh, which is Star Wars issue number 13. The cover date is July 1978. And according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, which is, as I have said before, where I get a lot of my information about when things happened and when things were released, uh, was April 11th of 1978. So, let's get started. So, Star Wars issue number 13 was written by Archie Goodwin. And Carmine Infantino and Terry Austin are the artists. Rick Parker is the letterer. It's a new name, I think. I don't remember seeing Rick Parker's name. Or did I make that same comment last time? Uh, No, I didn't. I'm looking back and it's John Costanza back then. So, uh, Rick Parker, a new name. I don't know much about him. Actually, literally everything that I know about him is that his name is right here. It's saying he lettered this comic. So when I say I don't know much about him, that's that's not overstating the case. Janice Cohen is the colorist and Jim Shooter, consulting editor. And I have to say, I have to say that this issue of Star Wars was a real, real treat. Uh, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say that <laughs> I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, let's see. To start with, it, it this issue in particular, <clears throat> the other issues hinted at um, some expanded universe. Uh, not just expanded universe, I should say. Uh, the other issues hinted at, uh, you know, just things have happened and interesting things. And there's there's this whole other world of of things. But in this issue, they give the backstory to that that world. And I'm, I would say. If I was little Benji Avery walking around the grocery store looking for this kind of thing and I pick this up and ask mom if she'd buy it for me as she's buying her groceries and mom says yes as she occasionally did, not every time, but occasionally she did, I would take this home and I would read it. And and if little Benji Avery had a chance to read it instead of adult Ben Avery uh, going back in time in the comic book time machine to read it, I would have – loved this issue. Now, that's not to say that this is like some of the other comics that I've read where I've said as a child, I would love it. And I don't love it as an adult. That's to say I love it as an adult. But as a child, I would read this and I would think, oh, my goodness, they're talking about the old Republic. They're talking about Jedi adventures before Star Wars. They're talking about a world that was inhabited. They're talking about 
other people doing other things that weren't just the empire and weren't just the rebellion, but they were people who were against the republic before the empire took over. And they created their own society on this planet. There is a whole backstory to these people, and I've been waiting for the backstory hoping it would be interesting and the truth of it is while there's some convolutedness to it it actually is kind of cool and there's flashback pages as they're telling the story of this people and it just hints at this broad broad universe it's exciting to me it's fun and this whole issue as i was reading it i would i would grin a little bit i only have two real gripes and one is the cliffhanger that we end on. And the other is that first, well, I guess three gripes. One is the cliffhanger we end on. The other is just the shortness of it. And when I, then my third being, this would have been a much better read if I wasn't breaking it up into chapters where I'm reading about one a month, one chapter of 17 pages every month. This as a story arc flows very well. And I think would read much better if you're starting with issue, I guess, uh, issue number 11, where we move away from Han Solo's adventures in uh, in the Magnificent Seven and move into Han Solo, Princess Leia trying to find Luke, who's lost on this water world. I really, really enjoyed this. Now, what did I enjoy about this? Well, the setup, first of all. Let's talk about where we're coming from with issue number 12. But where we're coming from with issue number 12 is set up into what I'm really enjoying about this. Uh, the first page, Day of the Dragon Lords, it says, uh, the captioning says, The ship is as big as a city. It endlessly sails the vast ocean that is the surface of this unnamed planet in the Drexel system. And it shows the ship. And we talked about it in the last episode. But if you haven't heard that episode, or just as a reminder, since it has been a little while... The people of this planet sail around on this wooden ship that they have built that is, it has houses. It's basically an Ewok village uh, merged with a pirate ship. And that, that enough is pretty cool. And then you have some excitement here with Luke where he has to save R2-D2 and C-3PO because the people on this planet, they want the metal because metal on this planet is more precious than any kind of jewel. And so they're going to just dismantle Luke. Not, not going to dismantle Luke. That's kind of stupid and would work nicely as a uh, blooper if I did bloopers for this show. But since I don't, I'm just not going to edit it out and just say they're not dismantling Luke. They're going to dismantle C-3PO and R2-D2. And so Luke, he's going to try and get them to not dismantle the robots, the, the droids. And so they say, fine, if they're as great as you think they are, then they'll fix our little... Uh, skimmers that, that we ride across the ocean so they do have some metal uh basically little hovercraft boat kind of things and so r2d2 fixes it faster than it needs to be fixed uh he has to cut corners but he's doing better than actually any of the people on this ship and he fixes it and they tell luke you know what luke you have to go on um a trial run so he's going to prove that r2 did what he said he could do and if he did what he said he could do they're not going to dismantle him because they'll need him and there's another guy who's watching and he's not real happy. You know, you can tell from his face. But the rule is anyone who is new and comes, they're going to be killed and their metal is going to be recycled. And so the the governor of the city, the leader of the city, uh, he's he's saying, why would I break my own rule for you? 
And so R2-D2 fixes the boat and Luke has to prove that basically prove that he's worthy, but also prove that R2-D2's workmanship is worthy to be, you know, mechanics for these people. And okay. So I'm reading that. I'm like, okay, now that's just the first three pages. And that's kind of interesting, but then (laughs) there's this perfect page flip and I don't know how it would work with ads in the comic because I don't have the actual comic. I have the omnibus here. Um, the omnibus uh, for the Star Wars is, is my time machine. And I, I love it, but uh, I do wish I could have the ads and some of the letter letter column kind of things. Anyway, he's going along. He's going to take this thing out and he has to destroy a bundle of wood. And you turn the page and all of a sudden there's a guy. You, you see in the last panel of page three, a hand pushing up a, a, a hatch. But then you turn the page, the guy is totally just grabs Luke in a chokehold and Luke is trying to pilot and and not die and also trying to plan how he's going to be able to use this ratty little boat thing that shouldn't even be afloat because R2-D2's fixed it. His workmanship is good, but uh, better than their work. But even then, you know, bringing it up to specs where they had it before is not good enough. He mentions actually the... Let's see here. Um, he says R2D's re- R2's repairs were help, but it's going to take some Beggar's Canyon style sharpshooting to get the job done. Nice little callback there to the movie. But then, like I said, you turn the page. He's trying to do. He's trying not to die as he's piloting. He finally he, he manages to to break the the bundle of wood. But it turns out it's the mechanic. It's the head mechanic. He doesn't want to be replaced, and so he is going to make sure that Luke Skywalker fails. Well, Luke doesn't fail. He manages to do what he, the, the little test. He, he blows up the wood. And so R2-D2 and C-3PO are saved. But then there's just more little details here. And, and the one detail is you see some children and some women uh, who they're, you know, they're all getting along. You see there's little tiny lizards all over the place. And uh, R2-D2 and C-3PO get an oil bath in fish oil. And uh, C-3PO mentions the, the odor. And that's kind of fun. But then as he's being as Luke is being shown around, he looks up at the yard arm where, you know, sails would be hanging from there, except this is a great big giant ship. And instead you have the huge mast and then the yard arms actually have houses on them. But hanging from one of them is the master machine smith. He had to be made an example of and he could he went against the governor and he tried to kill someone who could be of use and they don't waste anything that can be of use. And Luke and C-3PO and R2-D2 are two things that could be, well, three things, but human and, and droid. So two things that could be of use. And he's just hanging there. And it's a very, very, very tiny image. And it's not graphic at all, but it is very, very, very effective. And I, I think, you know, here the twists and turns already just in a few pages of this very short, you know, 17 page chapter really have me drawn in and excited to read. And I'm grinning a little bit as I'm reading because I'm really enjoying the ride that this issue is taking me on. So from here, we get then the backstory of these guys. And it's it's an interesting backstory and, and it makes sense in the context of what's come before with the dragons uh, the underwater dragons and the riders of the dragons, the dragon lords, but then also what caused Luke to crash, and and then it sets up some things for for what's to come. And basically, these guys lived in a system. The old Republic was not too happy with them because they would draw people in 
and then jam their computers and their their uh, well, I guess disrupt the ship's drives with their jamming systems, and then they'd swoop in and and pirate them. Uh, so what's happening here on the planet is something similar, where they don't have enough stuff to get off world, but they still have the jamming devices. So when a ship comes in close enough, they can cause it to crash. And you have two factions then because these pirates, they were trying to escape the old Republic. And there's one panel, a wonderful panel where in the foreground is just two hands holding a lightsaber. There's a guy laying on the ground and there's uh, the governor and some other people in the background. It's the people of this ship. It's actually, I think the governor's father, but they were running from the old Republic and their damaged ship crashed on this water world. Whenever another ship would come by, they would use their jammers to bring them down and then to get their metal to hopefully build something to be able to fight their battles better against the Dragon Lords. And in the meantime, they were going underwater and they were harvesting wood from these underwater plants. That's how they built this city that they're sailing around in. Uh, the the uh, the the dragon lords are are mechanics who rebelled against this and didn't want to do this, and so they actually have a device using similar technology to the jamming device to control the dragons. And so you have these two factions: one who you know they're all from pirate stock, but but some of them didn't like what they were doing and, and decided they were going to use the technology for for evil, and they were going to instead do good with it. And it's again, you have this little tiny society and this is fun sci-fi stuff where you get and it all fits into all the stuff that's come with the the guy who was riding his his dragon thing and and the the conflict that they had and the reason that Luke crashed. It, it makes it so much fun and it feels really well thought out. It feels like it makes sense. And that they they planned it this way, which is, well, probably what happened. Although looking back at, uh, you know, Archie Goodwin started writing with the issue where they talked about the fate of Luke Skywalker. And before that, it was uh, that I think the Don, yeah, the Don Glut scripted Roy Thomas story. And so this is. Yeah, this is Archie Goodwin saying, okay, I've got all these elements and I'm going to pull them together and make something cool out of it. And what ends up happening then is the Dragon Lords come and there's some more just brilliant, cool, neat artwork where you have the people on the, the, the riggings of the ship shouting out that there's an army of dragons is coming. And sure enough, on the horizon, the sun is coming up and there's just a few dozen dragons. Their heads just coming out of the water. It is an awesome, awesome panel. So you have the beginnings of a war here between the two factions of the small society. But then you also have the pirates coming because we don't want to forget about Han Solo, Princess Leia, Crimson Jack, um, the female character. What's her name? Jolly, I think it is, uh, you know, they're in that Star Destroyer and they're coming and the the uh, people of the ship have turned their jammers on that Star Destroyer. And uh, so meanwhile, uh, this creates a diversion for Han Solo and Princess Leia and Chewbacca to escape. And then they basically crash land into the water in the middle of that battle. And this brings up the only the, the other gripe that I have is that and that's the cliffhanger. And, and it ends with uh, skimmers attacking the Millennium Falcon and uh, Luke Skywalker 
and R2-D2 and C-3PO, they come around to the Millennium Falcon on their own skimmer, but Chewbacca instantly attacks them. Why? Because he was being attacked by a skimmer, and now he's kind of into this berserk mode where uh, he can't get out of it. It says here, it would take someone Chewie trusts, such as Han Solo, to calm him down. But Han Solo is missing now. There are, however, many more skimmers. Most of their crews saw what Luke did and mean to repay him. And so as Chewbacca is attacking Luke, so are the other people on the other skimmers. And then he wakes up, and I'm not sure. It looks like he's in the middle of a wooden, the hold of a wooden boat. Chewbacca, C-3PO, R2-D2, and Luke Skywalker. And Chewbacca has woken up, and he is in a rage. And that is the end. That's the cliffhanger. Uh, what's Chewbacca going to do? Is he going to destroy C-3PO and, and really hurt Luke? Which brings us to the cover. The cover has Chewbacca uh, on, again, it's basically the scene that I just described. It's Chewbacca punching Luke, holding C-3PO by the throat, and they're on a wooden ship or in the hold of a wooden ship. And Luke, uh, Luke uh, C-3PO is saying, Master Luke, this time we don't dare let the Wookiee win. Nice callback. And it says, friend against friend on a star lost world. Deadly reunion. So that's that's our cover image here. And the cover image is, you know, it's tied into that cliffhanger. So it's one of the weaker points of the book. But the book itself, this issue was so much fun. And then it says, uh, next issue, call it Armageddon. And yeah, I'm going to call it Armageddon. I actually am going to say it's about time Armageddon out of here to do our next segment, which is going to be Godzilla. Yes, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, number 12. Uh, the cover says Star Sinister. So we're, we're going to stay in space for a little while here. Maybe like last time. Last time the theme seemed to be water. Um, maybe the theme this time will be some sort of space-related thing. I don't know. I think I'm going to be able to figure out some sort of really weak way to make it. Uh, the the uh, the stories, they're, they're going to fit into this theme somehow or another even if they don't mean to but this one godzilla king of the monsters number 12 it definitely will that's our next segment so i just got done reading godzilla issue number 12 and i'm i'm reading it while listening to michael i'm gonna say this wrong michael giacinos i think that's how you say it but it's his Cloverfield soundtrack. And you might be saying, well, Cloverfield soundtrack wasn't Cloverfield, a found footage giant monster movie. Yes, it was a kaiju movie done in the style of found footage, you know, where they have the people running around with the cameras. And as they're running around with the cameras, that's who is making our movie. And I'm not a big fan of found footage movies. Every once in a while, there's a good one, but they all rely on a lot of the same gimmicks, you know, jump scares and, Things, you know, in the dark, just out, outside of the, the field of vision. I'm not a big fan of it. Also, there's usually not much of a score. There might be a, a soundtrack, but usually it's it's ambient music. It's music that is right there in the place where you are. And so it tends to be, uh, you know, maybe going to a concert or something playing on the jukebox or, you know, a band down the street, but you aren't going to get a lot of orchestral music and Cloverfield does not have any orchestral music within the story. But when you get to those end credits, 
a 12 minute end credits, there is a wonderful, wonderful symphonic homage to to the the bombastic uh, Godzilla and and other kaiju soundtracks. Uh, but the, the Godzilla Akira Fukube, I'm saying that wrong, but I'm saying it with confidence, Daniel. I'm saying it with confidence. Akira Fukube. Uh, <laughs> I'm saying it with confidence and my confidence drains right away after I say it. But anyway, it's a wonderful homage to those old school Godzilla movies. And and it's amazing. Now, it's 12 minutes long. When I bought it on iTunes, it was only 99 cents, though. And I was I was so... Uh, tickled. I don't like saying that. That sounds like uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm three. I was so tickled to find it. No, no, I'm not three. That's not that's not me as a three year old saying that. That's me as like a 1930s teenage girl saying that. I was so tickled to find this, but I was. I was so excited to find it on iTunes, and I love Michael Giacchino. I don't love him enough to really know how to say his name, but but all of the soundtracks that he uh, has written that I have actually listened to, I've really, really enjoyed. And this was no exception. And it's just about the length of time that it takes to read through a Godzilla comic book. I can't believe I didn't think to do this until now. Now, there's another special thing, not just the soundtrack to reading this issue, but I got to read it in full color and in floppy comic book form i'm not reading it out of my black and white essentials edition which is my usual quote unquote time machine to go back in time and read this but this was given to me by my buddy steve mcdonald he's my buddy i mentioned this before but he's a friend of mine we go back a long long way and we've been co- podcasting together over at strangers and aliens strangersandaliens.com about science fiction and and faith and spirituality and sci-fi and fantasy and all that stuff. And he heard one of my episodes where I was talking about, actually he heard the episode where I was talking about issue number three. And I was talking about, I'd love to see this in color. And then one day an envelope shows up on my doorstep. And what's in that envelope? Well, Godzilla King of the Monsters, issue number three and issue number 12. And that issue number three, it just has the glorious, glorious full page splash of Hercules flipping Godzilla head over heels uh, by lifting him by the foot and throwing him. And part of me wants to take that issue number three and cut it up and turn it into some sort of framed artwork. And honestly, uh, I'm kind of giving away some things here, but there's some panels and pages here in this issue that I would love to do the same kind of thing. Some sort of wall art that would showcase the artwork from from Herb Trimpey. So actually, that's a, as good a segue as any to who are the people who are behind this comic book, this issue number 12 of Godzilla King of the Monsters. There's Doug Mensch, the writer. There's Herb Trimpey, the artist. There's Fred Keita, the inker. There's B. Patterson, the letterer. There's Mary Titus, the colorist. And of course, Jim Shooter, the editor. And this story... I'm just going to say right now, reading it, I felt like I was transported into a kaiju movie. Now, we are continuing the serialized adventure of Godzilla, King of the Monsters, as he is marching through the United States. He just got done with a huge fight in the Grand Canyon with basically Bigfoot, who has grown to be really Bigfoot, and Red Ronin, a three-way fight in the Grand Canyon. But um, now... 
we're continuing on with that. But as serialized as it is, this feels like once you get past, well, you can't get past it. I was going to say once you get past all of the, the preamble and the setup, but you can't. You can't get past that. That's all a part of this. So, you know, all the ties to this great big long story, this 12 issue story that we've had so far, but this feels like we are stepping into a movie. This feels like we are stepping into a, a well, a movie of the 60s or 70s featuring Godzilla or or Gamera or any number of those kaiju monsters easily could be a part of this story. The opening captions I want to read because it kind of gets into the themes of what's going on here. Uh, the Mega Monsters from Beyond Part 1 is what this is. This is the Beta Beast. Uh, I don't know what that means when you're reading this, but you'll find out actually when you get through it. But these opening captions say, question, what is the difference between a freight train and a monstrous, a monstrous serpent as seen through the eyes of a creature such as Godzilla? Answer, none. And it shows Godzilla, he's trampling a giant railroad bridge and there's a train falling right toward us on this opening splash page. Now, the opening splash page, we are down low. We are looking up, up, up. And the the foreshortening that you get of Godzilla's leg that is closest to us, it's pretty, pretty big. Uh, but then it shrinks as as he's so tall that when you finally see his head, it's, it's really small up there. Uh, then the captions go on to say, and so the, the radioactive Leviathan again reverts to destruction. After all, an enemy quote-unquote, has attacked and must be destroyed. It is a simple code of behavior, and yet before this day is done, the fate of two worlds will depend on it. And this sets up our theme, this animalistic code of behavior. What is the animalistic code of behavior? It's survival. It's survival. Maybe survival of the fittest you know, is, is the theme here for our animalistic protagonist, but it is definitely talking about Godzilla's will to survive. That's what keeps him moving forward. That's what keeps him fighting is this survival instinct. Meanwhile, Dum Dum Dugan and Gabe Jones have just dropped off last issue's survivors. And they're putting in a, a call in for somebody else to come and get them and, and really help them. But uh, they, they drop off the survivors and then Dum Dum Dugan gives... <laughs> He really hangs a lampshade on pretty much his behavior. All of his behavior comes down to this. Uh, he, they're arguing again. Dum Dum is, uh, you know, muttering about the blasted punk and the stolen robot. So Gabe says to him, and again, reading from the dialogue here, if you're muttering about Little Rob and Red Ronan, don't forget he was the one who got rid of that giant Bigfoot. And Dum Dum says, yeah, and almost got himself pulped in the bargain. Look, Gabe, <laughs> Dum Dum says, uh, you think I like belly aching all the time? Putting on the crusty act is the only way I get to, uh, the only way I know how to get through. Besides, it saves a lot of time and grief. And then Gabe says, you mean dot, 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 question mark. And then back to Dum Dum, of course. And I figured you'd know it by now. My act may be convincing. But I ain't really afraid, afraid of that kid upstaging me. In fact, I kind of like him. He's got spunk. And that makes me all the more afraid of what might happen to him next. So, Dum Dum Dugan, he's admitting to the act. He knows that, that it's an act. And he is going ahead and just be upfront about it with Gabe. Uh, 
but you know, he still he feels these things, but you know, he's he's acting like the the crusty old belly aker basically be, to cope. It's his coping mechanism. He doesn't like doing it, but he has no other way of getting through all these problems and the problem they're facing now is what is little Rob going to do? Well, Rob is feeling guilty. Uh, he's feeling guilty for having killed Yetrigar, but if he hadn't done it, Yetrigar would have killed Godzilla. And he says, again, reading from the dialogue, there's no use in making excuses. Killing Yetrigar was just as bad as the Americans wanting to kill Godzilla. I'm guilty and I'll never be able to get away from myself by using you red Ronin. But I'm going to try, just keep flying, and maybe never stop. Poor kid. Poor, poor kid. But interesting kid now. He, you know, that whole idea, you know, I'm no better than the people that I was judging. I was judging the Americans as being bad for wanting to kill Godzilla, and then I turn around and do the exact same thing. They're trying to protect people, and they want to kill Godzilla to do so. I wanted to protect Godzilla and had to kill Retrogar to do so. You know, this is a nice bit of character development for the little quote unquote Kenny character. The annoying Kenny characters in especially Gamera, but they're in Godzilla, some Godzilla movies too. They tend to be one dimensional. There's a couple examples where where they aren't one dimensional or where there is actual character development. There's the oh, I'm trying to remember the name of the movie with uh that with Godzilla um uh all monsters attack that's what it was that Godzilla movie the kid actually had some character development now <laughs> the character development in question there is that he learns to fight against bullies and then literally becomes a bully who bullies someone who's not even bothering him at the end so the character development there you know there's some questionable ideas going on but this is some pretty i don't know if sophisticated is quite the right word i think i've used that before here talking about this maybe the last time but sophisticated maybe not but for a pulp comic book with not a lot of time to to devote to character development like this uh the, the truth is it's it's more than i was expecting and I don't remember. I mean, I've read through all of the Godzilla comics before of all the things that I'm going to be covering or that rather that I am covering right now. Um, Godzilla King of the Monsters, I've read the entire run of 24 issues, but it's been such a long time. I didn't remember any of this stuff. And so, you know, like I said, though, usually I mean, we've got a two dimensional Kenny character here and usually a Kenny character in a in a kaiju movie tends to be one dimensional or. Maybe not even that much. Uh, half dimensional. Is that such a thing? Um, if there is, I'm, I'm sure that there's some sort of B movie about it. The the man who is from half a dimension is able to slip through cracks in the walls because he's only half a dimension instead of three dimensions. I just wrote a pretty stupid sci-fi movie in my head just now. That's kind of fun. Anyway, um, while all this is going, there are unseen aliens who are watching the video replay of Godzilla's fight from last issue. And they decide that they are going to take the, the most powerful beast from the Earth for some sort of test of some sort. You know, we don't know exactly what's going on here. All we know is that Godzilla gets pulled across the cosmos through a, a black hole of 
dark matter Jack Kirby crackle? Sure. And when he gets pulled through space, he is getting pulled through Kirby space. Uh, it is not our space. It's the kind of space I talked about before where there's just so many bodies of you know celestial bodies there of, of rock and light and and he gets pulled to this barren moon type of thing and he has a sheath of oxygen all around him so that he can breathe and you know he's standing there alone and as you turn the page you get a splash page of another beast the the beta beast and it's it's awesome i I don't know how to how how else to describe it as far as comic book art goes. Uh, it's one of the best splash pages from this whole series. Godzilla, he's a little off model from the usual uh, razor bladed, toothy, uh, you know, lizard face. A little bit closer to more of a traditional Godzilla, uh, but and then the creature is just this bug eyed monster with a weird tongue and it has these weird antenna and tentacles with stingers that can shoot out. And uh, it's got some sort of weird kind of beetle like shell. And, and then we get a big fight, a big, big fight and Godzilla fights hard. I almost want to read all the captions, but I'm not going to, there is a lot of captions going on here. The art does not carry the story as far as, well, as much as Doug Mensch would like it to, I guess. So he's, you know, the, the journey cannot be called a journey, but whatever it is called, it is impossible. Do eternities pass in an instant or does a single instant occupy all of forever? One way or the other, there is movement. Then when a sphere of twinkling crystal clarity looms before him, a familiar sight to human astronomers, but to Godzilla, it is merely a cold, dead place. He cannot avoid a barren airless place and yet somehow he can breathe and hear the sound issues from the blackening of a huge crater grows louder as if nearing the very lip of the crater then the ghastly author of the sound slithers forth emerging fully from the crater's fathomless depths it is the beta beast a loathsome monstrosity spawned far beyond the visible stars but to godzilla who cares nothing about its name or origin it is simply another enemy and so they fight and godzilla again this is where he displays that instinct for survival and there's some great you know fighting illustrations going on here uh there is you know the weird monster the barren planet the just there's a lot of energy and emotion the primary emotion being rage and that's where we come to our final you know showdown here the beta beast presses his attack with a blast of real fire and Godzilla knows he will die on this barren plane unless he retaliates in kind. He must draw upon an inner strength, the hidden resources. He must summon courage. He must succumb to rage, courage and rage, the keys to life. In other words, he must try harder. <laughs> That's what's happening here. <laughs> And in the end, even courage is no longer necessary. Necessary, Mere rage will do. Godzilla triumphant. And then the aliens show themselves. And so as he wins the battle, he wins the battle because of his, his survival instinct. Uh, again, those keys to life. 
those things that we were talking about at the beginning of, of the issue as well. Now, the aliens show themselves as he comes. Uh, he tries to attack them as they rise up from the, the barren uh, landscape in, in some sort of weird domed building. And they, they shout, freeze him with the id ray! And then they're going to use that to explain their actions. They know he, they won't, he won't understand the details, but they hope he understands enough to act. And what is their backstory? You know, if, if space is one theme of what we're seeing in these last two issues of, of comics for this month, July 1978, the other issue or the other theme seems to be backstory. It's war. Their backstory is war. There's been a war of attrition between two alien races ending in the ultimate of escalation, giant war beasts. And they've laid waste to a dozen worlds in their battle. And now the bad guy aliens, uh, for lack of a better term, they're called Megans. <laughs> have destroyed all but one of the betas, which are the good guy aliens, war beasts. And so now uh, the one surviving beta beast, Godzilla has just slain that, and that has shown that Godzilla might be powerful enough to stop the three most powerful Megan war beasts that are on their way to Earth. And those beasts are Triax, Rian, and Kroller. And they are sufficiently alien. They do not look like man in suit kaiju, uh, similar to the, the beta beast that, that Godzilla just destroyed. And they're not just on their way. They're on their way targeting the most powerful beings on Earth. Uh, but the betas have brought Godzilla off Earth, so he is no longer there to be targeted. So guess who they've targeted? Is it the Hulk? No. Is it Thor? No. Is it Sentry? Well, Sentry wasn't created until you know just a few years ago. But he was supposedly around at this point in time. It's just the whole world has forgotten him completely. But no, it, they're not targeting any of these powerful characters. They're targeting Red Ronin. And so Red Ronin is confronted with Triax, and then Godzilla is transported from that barren landscape to that point where Rob is trying to get Red Ronin up and running as this alien beast is coming toward him. So anyway, here's what we have, uh, our cliffhanger, <laughs> and we'll find out next issue if, if Godzilla is going to help Red Ronin or not. So here we are. We have Godzilla in this story. He's the living embodiment of rage and power and, and survival, uh, of he's an embodiment of instinct. He's a embodiment of uh, reaction he reacts with rage. He reacts with his decision-making processes solely focused on surviving. And Doug Mensch, in this issue especially, has done a really fantastic job of creating an animalistic protagonist, I guess. I mean, you know, there's not a lot of uh, character development for Godzilla. You don't expect that. You don't want that in this. Godzilla needs to be an animal especially in the context of of the story that Doug Mensch is trying to to tell here and you know he he's an angry powerful monster that's trying to survive instead of an angry powerful do-gooder <laughs> uh my spell check uh autocorrected do-gooder to do-goober anyway he's an angry powerful do-gooder that knocks down buildings accidentally 
and incidentally as he battles powerful evil monsters. And Mensch has a great handle on what he wants to do with the character, but he also has a great handle on what a kaiju movie should look like. And this, like I said before, this feels like a kaiju movie. you got aliens. You've got aliens kidnapping Godzilla to fight another monster. You've got uh, other monsters, which is nice to see as well. And there's not a lot of superhero elements here. Although, you know, the idea of the Marvel Universe, Red Ronin, really, that's the most powerful thing that you're going to target. I mean, obviously, there's two other powerful things. It's this triad of of monsters that are being sent. And it looks like only Triax is there with Red Ronin. But that's it. Red Ronin, he's the most powerful of one of the three most powerful things on the planet at the time. Uh yeah, it stretches things a little bit, but, you know, it's fiction and this is the story that needs to be told. We want to tell a story about Red Ronin. This is not the Hulk's story, I guess. So Mensch knows what he wants to do with the character. He makes us feel like a kaiju movie. The question is, does the monster's stories theme match up with the humans thematic ideas in their story? Because that's what I like to see. I like to see a monster story happening that reflects the human story. And so you're seeing not a perfect metaphor necessarily, but at least a reflection. And I think there is here. Now, Godzilla's thematic movement in his story is survival. Really, survival of the fittest. So what do you have with humans? Well, you have Dum Dum and Gabe helping other people survive. You have Rob regretting that he killed somebody he was helping godzilla survive but he regrets that the that yetergar did not survive you have aliens plotting to use a ruthless force of nature against other ruthless forces of nature to survive and they're also trying to help you know two worlds survive theirs and ours and so, you, you know, there's the idea of survival of the fittest with Godzilla. And, and I'm not sure where this is going, and I'm not sure if this is intentional. But, you know, survival is one of the basest of instincts. And the difference here, I think, is the difference between animalistic survival and humanistic survival. Uh, it's not just that you survive. Surviving that desire to preserve life is not a wrong thing. But the difference between humans and animals in some ways might be how you survive. Again, not the what, but the how. And, you know, an animal has little to no choice in the matter. Humans do. Humans actually can practice self-sacrifice for other people to survive. Animals, I guess, will do so in some ways as well. But they aren't choosing it. Humans have that choice. Uh, ultimately, humans of our real world that end up making choices that are more animal than human as they act or react. Uh, you know, humans can act where animals react. And humans, when the, what they're doing, unfortunately, a lot of times what you're seeing is humans reacting in fear and anger and acting more like animals in that regard. Not that they're being beastly. Just that they're not thinking through and they're not acting out in the best with their best nature. 
you know, to, humans have understanding of consequences also that are beyond the moment. They have imagination. They're able to think through and come up with, you know, peaceful resolutions to conflicts, you know, in the short term. And they're also able to think about uh, eternal implications that come from the, the spiritual realm. They're able to conceive with imagination what can result from a decision. They understand consequences beyond the moment and they can tap into that understanding to make good things happen. That's when good things happen is when they tap into that understanding. They can also use that for evil, obviously, Um, but they're able to conceive with their imagination what comes from a decision and they're able to overcome fear and rage and overcome it with courage and and love, which are two of the most important values that human life, uh, particularly as I see it through the lens of my, my Christian beliefs and ideals, uh, they're, they're some of the best values that we can strive to attain. And I'm getting on a soapbox and maybe I should, I should get off it, but you know, Godzilla issue number 12, <laughs> giving me time to think about, you know, what separates us from the animals. And, and that's actually not a bad thing to think about. There is something that separates us from the animals. We're not just animals. Uh, again, coming from my Christian beliefs, I believe that we have been set, uh, you know, created in the image of God and that we have been set apart from the animals. We share things with the animals. We have hearts that pump blood. We have we do have instincts that cause us to, you know, jump back when there's, you know, you touch a burning stove. I, I don't know why the stove is burning, but you know, the hot stove. You know, you pull your hand back. Anyway, um I'm on a soapbox and maybe I should get off of it, but uh with Godzilla here, I had a lot of fun reading it. And hey, I, I actually got to do a little bit of uh um you know armchair philosophy. <laughs> so uh that's that's not a bad thing. So uh, from here, I'm not sure where this is going to go. I'm assuming there's going to be four more parts, but I do not remember if this really does take us from issue 12, 13, 14, 15 into 16 with him fighting all three of the monsters in different places on the earth. Is this going to be some sort of, uh, you know, G.I. Joe, the weather machine gets split up. And so they have to go and do adventures in three different places to fill out a five, a five day, uh, five part uh, story. I don't know. We'll see. But I really enjoyed this. I really enjoyed this issue. And so, again, we've got two really, really good, enjoyable pulp science fiction comic book stories. And next, I think we're going to turn and I guess we're going to go look at Human Fly. So uh, I can tell you this right now. I don't I'm not going to give away too much, but. My reaction to this issue of Human Fly was very different than my reaction to some other issues. This issue is issue number 11 and, well, man, <laughs> where where to start? Um, let's start at the beginning. Um, first of all, the continuing the idea that I started with Godzilla – of listening to soundtracks while I read the comic. Uh, the, the idea, not just being the soundtrack, but listening to Michael Giacchino. Giacchino, Giacchino. Again, not saying it right, not saying it with confidence. Sorry, Daniel Butcher. My, he's my co-host from Welcome to Level 7. He just says, you know, if you don't know how to say something, just say it with confidence. Keep moving forward. I can't just do it. I can't. But uh, I was listening to another Giacchino uh, soundtrack uh, for The Human Fly. I wanted to figure out what would be a good one and i came up with the idea to listen to speed racer the speed racer soundtrack and and you know the soundtrack's good listening to it while reading the human fly wasn't bad it wasn't perfect it didn't elevate the story to something else 
It already was something onto itself. Uh, and I probably won't replicate it next time to read. I, I read a human fly comic. I probably won't be re- listening to the soundtrack to Speed Racer. But um, I, I will be replicating that next time around for Godzilla. I'll be listening to that Cloverfield soundtrack. It is perfect. Anyway, uh, this one is not bad. Now, I listened to the soundtrack as I was reading through a second time for this recording. The first time I read this issue was actually while I was on vacation in Canada. And that's uh, an interesting element here because, well, Human Fly was a real guy. Uh, The cover says it, the wildest superhero ever because he's real. I know he's a real guy because I've seen pictures and now I've seen video of him appearing on talk shows, local news talk shows. And I have to say... It, it was interesting doing the research for this episode. And I when I say research, I mean research. For this segment, for this comic book, this issue of The Human Fly, I had to just go into it and just, just dive in to this research here and find out what in the world was going on. Why? Well, we'll get into it. We will, I promise, get into it. But like I said, he, his name was Rick Rojat. And he was from Montreal. And so, you know, Canadian stuntman. Here is, on the cover, we have him falling off of a bike as the bike flies over some school buses and people are acting like something's going wrong. Well, and it says, this issue, a true-to-life account of the near tragedy at Montreal. Legends die hard, it says on the cover. And we're going to find out just how hard it is for legends to die inside. I'm not telling you what's going to happen, who it's going to happen to, but someone does not survive this issue. Someone does not survive. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Anyway, looking back at the last issue, um, they had a blurb and it said this. Uh, This is from issue 10, talking about issue 9. It says, as we said somewhere, probably last issue, but you know how our memories are, this issue of Human Fly would contain some exciting announcements about our very real superhero. Now, the announcements that they're about to give that I'm about to read actually end up being announcements about this issue. But the announcements go like this. First, again, quoting from the the blurb. First, on October 7th, 1977, the fly attempted to set a world's record by rocket cycle leaping over 26 consecutive school buses. In a comics first, we'll be bringing you that story taken from real life right here in this mag next month. Secondly, also in Human Fly number 11, the Human Fly himself will be making a startling announcement of his own. That's right. We don't want to give it away, but the man himself will be giving you a hint about his own plans for the future on the very last page of our very next issue. Thirdly, but not least, we've actually begun work on a photo feature to be printed here in just a few months. Not only does it feature the Fly himself, but also his assistant and those zoological wonders that inhabit the Marvel bullpen. So stick with us, pilgrims. The very best is yet to come. Now, that photo thing, I don't know if it's going to come or not, but it's not in this issue. And that sidekick that they're talking about, the assistant, I guess, he's actually another stuntman who dresses up as a hero. He's not masked. Uh, Human Fly never revealed his identity while he was going around as the Human Fly. In fact, some people think he might have actually been more than one person who was doing this. Or the Human Fly would be going around in the costume, but there was someone else doing the stunts and that kind of thing. Mercury was a guy who trained with the human fly to do stunt work, 
but he didn't wear a mask at all. And I actually saw him. Like I said, I was doing some research and I saw Mercury in a talk show with the human fly. Anyway, looking at this, that's a lot of hyperbole, but I have read the issue and they live up to the hype. They live up to the letter of the hype anyway, if not the spirit of the hype. So now, okay, this issue, where do I start? Uh, I guess this, this comic itself, it's, it's an odd, it's an odd thing. It's an odd, an odd duck, I guess. It really does have the story, the real story of human flies jump in Montreal. And, you know, coming into this, I already knew he had failed at this stunt. This was something that in my early, uh, not research, but my early preparation to read the human fly, I, I found some articles about this jump and I'm going to read from one of those articles that I found early on. It's a very interesting article and uh, the link I'll, I'll give it when we get to it. But um, <laughs> how would they approach it was the question. How would they approach this real life event in the context of a comic book where he just teamed up with Daredevil? I could not have been more surprised with this comic. And it's it's a delightful surprise. It's an audacious story that they tell. Uh not in the best way uh, that you define the word necessarily, but um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's cheese. It's cheese. It's kitsch. This comic, I don't know who this was meant for. I don't know what they were really trying to do. I, I feel like uh, Bill Mantlo was kind of just stuck in a corner. You know, let's go ahead. Well, we'll get to the credits in a moment here. But uh, I feel like Bill Mantlo, Mantlo was stuck in a corner. He had to do this story about the jump in Montreal, but then also this other announcement that they're making. Uh, okay, so let's just start. Let's just get into it. The opening splash page has an emotional fly. I mean, you can tell just by his body language. He is a down and a depressed man and he's sitting on a sofa playing the guitar uh, it's it's a splash page and as far as splash page go it's not the most um interesting it's not the most action-packed but it sets the emotional tone for where the fly is and he's in a dark dark place as the the caption boxes tell us <laughs> you are looking at a man whose soul is in torment a man whose reach exceeded his grasp a man who failed but a man who is, after all, just a man like any other. His name? Well, we call him the Human Fly. And then the credits the credits box tells us a startling new development in the life of the Human Fly. And that gives us the credits. Bill Mantlo, writer. Lee Elias, penciler. Mike Esposito, inker. Irv Wadnati, letters. G. Rusis, colors. And Archie Goodwin, editor. And... You know, the truth is, this is a very momentous issue. There, This is a turning point issue. This is a turning point in a character uh, who is going through a personal crisis, a uh, character who is going through a career crisis as well. There, I mean, there's actually some development for the characters, and they're they make actions that, that changes the course of their life, and it actually, in some ways, changes the course of, you know, what is one character going to be doing next issue you know this is not something that you would do in a you know week to week to week uh you know hour-long primetime drama adventure show like Knight Rider or the human uh, the a-team unless you were doing it at the beginning of the season or the end of a, of a season 
but they they change they change people's lives in this comic. Now, people reading this comic may not change their lives. Uh, they meant to do a story that was going to you know cause you to think and cause you to maybe even change. But honestly, I, I find myself thinking more about that Godzilla comic, which wasn't intending me to think the way I was thinking, than this. The inspiration that you're supposed to find in this comic, well, you know what? It's so ham-fisted. It's so... And, and then it just gets so... I don't want to give away too much more <laughs> about the ending. Human Fly is depressed. He's brooding. He's playing his guitar. And it's all because of that accident in Montreal. And his team is worried about him. And they flash back to his team up with Daredevil and White Tiger. And then they flash back to rolling into Montreal... Uh, where Harmony White confronts Human Fly, but she's thinking, I don't know how they're able to flashback about her thoughts, but in their flashback about her, where they're not happy with her because she's pushing herself on Human Fly as a reporter who is antagonistic to him, she also is saying, I have to do it because my boss will fire me if, if I don't. So, yeah, people, someone else's thoughts in, in someone's flashback, it's comics. They're trying to set things up, but then we go into the dramatic stunt and the failure and he crashes into a bus and he, and now, now he has physically healed, but he is not mentally healed. He is not emotionally healed. And as the caption box tells us, he'd embodied the hopes of so many to millions handicapped, hurt and helpless. He'd offered hope a second chance and now he himself had failed and so basically he has you know he's he's been standing tall and now he's failed and he feels like he is a fraud uh you know who is who offered hope to people when you know what he failed so what hope is there um and i, I could see in real life, this actually being something that you would deal with when he, this was a big deal, this jump. Now, I, I want to talk about that that article I was telling you about. Uh, we're going to take a break from the comic book and move into real life here. Uh, if you go to the website, the-rocketman.com slash human-fly.html, you'll find a, a record from a man named Kai Kai Michelson, who is the Rocket Man. He is a he's worked with stunt people and he designs rocket things. And uh, he says, in 1977, I was contracted to build a rocket-powered motorcycle capable of jumping over 27 buses. The jump was to take place in the Montreal Olympic Stadium as a halftime show for a concert featuring Gloria Gaynor and a number of other disco stars of the 70s. The Daredevil rider was Rick Rojat, otherwise known as a human fly. At the time, Evil Knievel held the record of 13 buses, and Rick wanted to beat it badly. From the moment I met this guy, I was convinced he was an accident looking for a place to happen, especially when he told me he wanted to attempt 36 buses. I managed to convince him otherwise when we discussed the fact that in order to do something that remarkable, he'd have to hit the ramp at well over 100 miles per hour and continue to burn the rocket a couple more seconds after takeoff. I explained that it was definitely possible, but the fact remained that acceleration of that magnitude in such a small area would launch him headfirst through the concrete pillar at the opposite end of the arena. That conversation resulted in his finally accepting the challenge for 27. Instead, he'd have to travel 80 miles per hour. And it wasn't that there wouldn't be a crash for, I was certain there would be, it was just a matter of how bad it would be by the time he reached our nets and a huge airbag we'd have set up. 
As we prepared for the stunt, it soon became obvious that one of the biggest challenges we faced was the space constraint in the arena. There was no room to accelerate to the speed required, so I came up with a plan. I'd build a rocket-powered motorcycle that would sit right at the bottom of the ramp instead of making the usual fast and furious approach. All the fly would have to do is get on, wave to the crowd, press the button, say a quick prayer, and hang on for dear life. Uh, So then, I mean, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but... um, they set things up and then uh, this Kai arrives and says, much to our surprise, we could clearly see that the blueprints for both the jump and the receiving ramps were obviously not adhered to as there were major flaws in both of them. The jump ramp was much too steep, which would cause the rocket bike to come off at the wrong angle and stall. I was even more concerned about the receiving ramp, though, as the last 10 buses were supposed to be covered by plywood extending to the ramp. What we found instead was a plywood ramp that was about six feet above the buses with exposed steel cross members. I told the promoters that their contractors or whoever it was that built these things obviously didn't follow the blueprints we provided, and I was not going to fuel up the rocket bike until major changes were made to the receiving ramp. I won't go into a lot of detail here, but it did turn into a major ordeal by the time we were we did our last safety inspection, which forced the showtime to change quite a bit. And he goes on to the arrival of Human Fly to the ramp. He took center stage in full costume. The crowd went absolutely wild. I stood in awe as he hopped on the motorcycle, waved to the crowd, looked over at me, gave the thumbs up, turned on the safety switch, and slowly opened the throttle. The rocket bike started up the ramp slowly at first, and then the Human Fly pinned the throttle wide open. The cloud of smoke was a sight to behold in the nearly pitch-dark arena. The superheated steam shot out of the back as the bike climbed up the ramp and instead of launching forward into the air, went much higher than it should have and nearly straight up. Because of the wrong angle, it stalled when he let off the throttle and the rear end dropped, nearly arching the bike completely backwards as it hit the receiving ramp hard before then crashing down on him. My heart just pounded as I stood there witnessing the crash of all crash landings right before my eyes, and a hush fell over the crowd as we all feared the worst. It looked like nobody could have possibly survived such a crash landing. We were soon relieved when we realized that he actually was okay. He'd survived the crash, and he'd done it. He had broken evil's record, but not without paying the price. He waved to the crowd as he was carried off on a stretcher, suffering a broken ankle and a couple of other injuries. <laughs> now, if you want to hear more details about this story, just buy me a Diet Coke the next time you see me, and I'll be happy to share one of the most bizarre events of my life with you. So there's a bit of the real story. There's more at that website. Again, that's rocket-man.com. But, um, yeah, now, that's not all the research I did. That's from when I was just doing prep at the beginning to find out more about who this real guy was. You know, it's like watching the movie just to know what I'm expecting when I start reading the comics. Let's get back to the fake story. Uh, back in the bus, the fly, this is again caption boxes, the fly sings softly to himself. While beneath the famous arch in the city of St. Louis, we find Willie Silver. And so now we're with Willie Silver. And he's also going through a crisis. He is supposed to play a concert while Human Fly does his stunt at the arch. And he's afraid because every time he's played his hit song, Death of a Superstar, bad things happen. You know, Things fall down, almost killing him. We're now in classic week-to-week, hour-long, primetime, 70s, 80s adventure drama. Uh, So he feels like there's a curse on him, like he's going to die, just like the rock star in his song. But he agrees to do the song because his road manager is forcing him to. And after he agrees, he just says to his bandmates, why do I feel like I'm going to die tonight? 
So we have two superstars facing a crisis, one who's afraid to die because of a curse. The other is afraid to die because of a failure. But the one death is more metaphorical that is being feared. And the other one is very literal that is being feared. Now we also find out that not only does the road manager want Willie to play death of a superstar, um, human fly also wants him to play death of a superstar. And he reveals to his friends, he's asked Willie to play the song and everyone's like, what's going on? Why would you do that? That's really morbid. But fly says, no, 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 no. It's a song of hope of rebirth. Cause he's, he's going to try and do the stunt, you know, and his friends discuss, does he think he's going to die? And, and then one of them says, no, he's just, trying to learn to live with himself again after dying in Montreal. So the stunt is he's going to drive a motorcycle up and over the St. Louis arch. And so now we're getting into the moment of truth. You know, there is no bad guy. The, well, there is a bad guy, but the, the, the bad guy that human fly must overcome is his own self doubt, his own self loathing. Then there's also the bad guy who literally wants to kill Willie Silver <laughs> to get insurance money. Yeah, it's the road manager in case you hadn't figured out who was causing all those accidents and stuff before. Um, and then we also have Harmony White who has to overcome her own uh, personal inner demon and also her own physical, actual demon that comes in the form of her boss. And so with these three different things happening side by side simultaneously in our climax we have the band and they're playing or they're kind of announcing what's going on while they're playing in between songs or something because then human fly he is riding and harmony white she is reporting band playing human fly riding harmony white reporting and all three dealing with their own personal crisis their own personal demons their own personal problems their own personal fears that they have to overcome willie silver he doesn't fear death anymore he's overcome it after seeing the fly's example he's gonna play his song human fly he's overcome his fear of failure and he's proven that there's hope because he is someone who walked away from death and he'll he'll never fear failure again and harmony white summons up the courage to overcome her fear of her boss by just quitting her job uh, and this is here's our quotes that we get from from our three characters harmony white in overcoming her fear she says mr braden you obviously didn't listen before I don't work for you anymore. You can take your job and stuff it. I mean, that's a song right there. If I ever heard one, take this job and stuff it. You didn't listen before. I don't work for you anymore. You can take your job and stuff it. Human fly. He says, I did it. Do you hear me world? I live again. I've proven my message is real. Your faith in me has healed me. I believe in myself once more. Thank you. And he cries tears of joy. And meanwhile, Willie Silver, he's changing the words to death of a superstar. Now, we don't know what the original words were. We don't know what the new words were, but he's changing them. And he turns around and says to his bandmates, he did it, lads, for all of us. Let's give him a song to thank him for giving us something to believe in. Yeah! Uh, that's right. The There's some sort of electrical charge in a device that's been attached to his guitar that is pressed against his flesh. 
And Human Fly sees the surge of electricity surge into Willie's body, and he drives his his uh, motorcycle up onto the stage. And Harmony White sees a flash from the hands of the road manager who's trying to collect on that insurance I told you about. And Harmony Harmony reveals the manager did the deed. Meanwhile, Willie is laying dying on the stage. He's burned really badly. Um, Human Fly has pulled the the cord that was causing this kind of electrical feedback or something into uh, Willie's body, but Willie falls to the ground. His hands are kind of frozen up, <laughs> as if they've you know the muscles have been clenched there. And I'm sorry, I'm laughing about this. This really isn't meant to be funny. Obviously, it's not meant to be funny. It wasn't written to be funny. It's kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> he's laying there. And he says to Human Fly, he says, I'm done for, but my music means so much to people. Don't let my music die, okay? And Human Fly says, okay, Willie, I promise. And so what does Human Fly do? Is he going to try and help Willie's music not die by helping maybe Willie not die? You know, calling an ambulance or giving CPR or rushing Willie to his bus to take him to the hospital personally. I mean, does he step up and act like a hero by being proactive and, and doing something to rescue this man who lies dying in his arms? No. What does he do? He takes Willie's guitar. He goes to the mic. Willie is dying on the stage behind him as he steps to the mic and says, ladies and gentlemen, for Willie Silver... For all of us, I'd like to sing Birth of a Superstar. I mean, what in the world? What? What is going What did I just read? I mean, I love Bill Mantlo. I, I love his writing. Sometimes it's not great. Sometimes it's one of those, oh, he just, just let his mind just, you know, vomit onto the page and, and here's the story I needed to come up with something in a week. And here's what I came up with today because I waited until the last minute to, to write my, my, my script. And, and sometimes you look at it and it's so bad, it's good. And sometimes you look at it and it's just not great. And then there's gems, true gems. There's true brilliance and genius. It's not in some of the stuff we're reading here with human fly, but it's there. This is not one of those. I, I feel like I feel like he was kind of forced into a corner on this one because this isn't the usual brand of human fly blandness. Uh, this goes beyond uh, into some some of the there was something like this you know early on with some of those issues, but this one, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. <laughs> human fly is standing there and he has been written to be so self-obsessed or self-consumed that he does this. He turns a man's death, which is still happening, still occurring behind him on the stage in front of a live audience. And he has turned it into a moment where he has rewritten the man's song, not into some sort of, you know, candle in the wind kind of thing where it was about, you know, Marilyn Monroe and now it's about princess die. You know, he's not turning the death of a superstar and rewriting the end of the song. So it is literally about Willie's uh, silver. No, no, no. He has rewritten the man's song into a metaphor 
for human fly conquering his own psychological crisis. <laughs> part of me wonders if Bill Mantlo is actually making a statement about the actual human fly, you know, that he's so self-obsessed, self-absorbed. I feel like he had to write this story. I mean, uh, then because we get this caption at the end that says the the Montreal stunt took place on October 7, 1977, as depicted. The human fly stuntman extraordinaire will soon become a recording artist as well. Now, there's no letters page, which is where I expected the announcement for the human fly, you know, about his next step in his future to be. No, this was the announcement. He's stand, he, they've got him standing on the stage in, in a, you know, two thirds size panel and underneath it is this announcement he's going to be a recording star very very soon so here's the thing i get to this point and i had to know more where did this come from so i did some research i mean i did real legit research research that i couldn't have done without the internet it just wouldn't have been possible to do to find the things that i found so here's a little bit of the timeline May 31st, 1977, that's the on-sale date for issue number one. October 7, that's the jump, 1977. The Montreal Gazette, October 11, 1977, has an article about the human fly and his reaction to that Montreal stunt. Uh, it, it says the, the 29-year-old stuntman was brokenhearted at the Montreal turnout for the stunt he actually says Canadians just aren't ready for spectacular events. He, he says uh, he's going to repeat the same jump on the same motorcycle next year in California, where quote, the public seems to appreciate the importance of events like this. And the fact that a man is risking his life. Now we also find out there were only 1500 people in that stadium that seated 80,000 people. Uh, the article mentions that the spectators were coming and it was an open top stadium and they were shivering in the stadium. The fly was in his dressing room crying. It says the fly wept in his dressing room and um, appealing with radio to radio stations to announce that attendance to the show, which did cost $9 was now free. And he was waiting as uh, the, the manager said to the, the, the people writing the article, the reporter, I guess the the person who wrote the article, otherwise known as the reporter, he said that um that he was waiting in, in vain for seats to fill up. So that was October eleventh, nineteen seventy seven, and I found other articles that were kind of repeating the same thing. And there were some articles just talking about how foolish the human fly was, what a stupid stunt man he was for even trying to do this kind of thing. We had the article that I read from uh, Kai Michelson. That's actually I think it's from two thousand six or two thousand five that he wrote that reflection back on that, and he kind of gives the idea that he thinks the human fly is kind of an idiot. Uh, okay, so October eleventh, nineteen seventy seven. That article was written October 7th was the jump October 4th or October April 4th, 1978 is when this issue came out, making the announcement that he wanted to be a recording star and kind of dealing with the aftermath of that event. But the Montreal Gazette again in June uh, 1979 has an article with an interview with David Levine, who was the promoter, was the promoter who worked with the human fly and who was actually on the clip that I saw, the segment that I saw from that talk show. And he says, 
he's he's a music uh, manager as well. He says, I'm working on putting together a rock band starring the human fly. Now, this is 1979 that he's saying that. He basically says that he's not going to promote any more stunts after what happened with the bus, that he he's not interested in promoting any more stunts with the human fly. But um, then a friend of the human fly, Joe Ramasiri, he they're, they're also talking about this decision. He says the fly spent the last year in New York fooling around with musicians and the human fly himself was not available for comment, but he's serious about becoming a music star. Now I looked the soundtrack I wanted to listen to when I was reading this through the second time, I was hoping to find something, an album, something featuring the human fly. I couldn't find anything. They, I don't think they ever did this. And other than this article in 1979, after the failure at Montreal, he actually did disappear. Human Fly was wore a mask the whole time, and so he just fell out of uh, the public conscious. He didn't do any more TV appearances. He didn't do any more stunts that I can tell anyway. He was done. The comic was not done, but he was done uh, until this 1979 article where he's, he's announcing that he's going to come out and become a, a recording star and be a part of this rock band starring or uh, promoted by David Levine, who also promoted the the disco stars who were actually singing at the the stunt so yeah that's more than you wanted to know about the human fly and if i had given you more than i than you wanted to know i am glad to have done it if there's more that you want to know than i'm able to give there's not much more i can do other than say you know you can do some searches and stuff but um i've given you (laughs) as much as i can give you uh, about the human fly and, and probably about as much as I want to give you. I don't think I want to go any deeper into this, but this just made me scratch my head. It made me, I, I reacted out loud when I read that last page. It's just, wait a minute, he's dying behind you. And then it's no, this is actually the announcement for his recording. This is 1978. Uh, you know, this hit the stands in, in 1978 uh, or a year before uh, they they made the announcement in the newspaper. So this is something they were planning to do. This is part of the stunt. You know, this is part of the um, the public relations run with this character. And yeah. So anyway. Uh, oh, one last thing. I guess I got my note here. Um, are we in space for this issue? And I just uh, you know because we had the theme of space that I said I was going to figure out how a way to shoehorn to say you know. This is the through line for all these comics. Water was last time, space this time. Are we in space in this issue? No, but there are some stars. So there you have it. Superstars. And there is out in outer space, there is space between the stars. Godzilla crossed that space. And here on the stage, we have space between the stars. And that space is a serious lack of self-awareness. He's self-absorbed. He's self-deluded. But he is not self-aware as he's standing there. The space between him playing the guitar and that other guy, Willie Silver, dying behind him. Next, we're going to talk about Man from Atlantis, number six. So I'll see you on the flip side for that. Now, Man from Atlantis, issue number six, 
Uh, <laughs> okay, so we've had Human Fly, and it was it was something special. We've had Godzilla, and it was something special. And we've had Star Wars, and it was something special. And now we have Man from Atlantis, issue number six. Is it something special? Well, everybody is loved by somebody. So this issue might be something special to somebody, like maybe Bill Mantlo. I don't know. Is it? Does it live up to the heights, the highest of heights that we've gotten from the other, uh, <laughs> other books from July 1978 cover date? No, it's it's just more of the same level of quality that we've been getting from Man from Atlantis, which is not great, not super cheesy, but pretty solid and in the middle. Although there is some really interesting and I think enjoyable things in this issue. It's just not, it doesn't take me to the place where I'm excited reading Star Wars or I'm mortified and just uh, completely amazed with, with uh, Human Fly. No, this is uh, Man from Atlantis though, and it's based on the, uh, from the cover copy, the sensational NBC television super series. Although we'll talk about later uh, whether it was actually a sensational television series or not. Not just a television series, but sensational television super series. Latitude 90 is the name of the issue. It's the name of the story, I should say. Um, last issue was chapter one. And then it was called A Modern Master of the World. This issue, it is not chapter two. They dropped that. I'm not sure what what that was, if that was an editorial oversight or if that was something they decided, you know, we're really we're going to be just continuing from story to story here. Um, it's not actually, you know, chapter one of a story. And so they they dropped it. I don't know. But it's it's called Latitude 90. And the cover has Mark Harris in water. There's a metal collar on his neck and a steel cable leash attached to the collar on one end and attached to a spool on top of a Nazi-looking submarine on the other end. And there's an ichthyosaur leaping out of the water toward Mark, jaws open, ready to, to, to devour the poor man from Atlantis. And uh, the cover copy gives us, like I said, that all-new from the sensational NBC super television series. And then it says, In a prehistoric sea, surrounded by a lost hidden land, Mark Harris is trapped at the mercy of Scorba. Bait for the behemoth. And yes, this is, again, continuing that story that we had before with Scorba. The writer is Bill Mantlo. The penciler, again, Frank Robbins. The inker is Frank Springer. Uh, Joseph Rosen is the letterer. And the colorist is Janice Cohen. The cover that I just described was by Ernie Chan. Before we look inside, let's talk about music because I've been listening to Michael Giacchino's music, uh, soundtracks for movies that he has done that I really appreciate and enjoy and sometimes write to. I like to listen to movie scores when I write. It's especially exciting when you're writing something that matches the you know, matches, matches exactly the tone of the music that you're actually listening to. And... Uh, in this case, uh, I listened to Jurassic World. 
you know, dinosaurs. Uh, it made sense. And it was almost perfect. The difference between this and, say, listening to the uh, the Cloverfield with Godzilla is that Cloverfield is going to be perfect no matter what, I think. It's about it's, – it, well, it is. It's 12 minutes, and that's about the time it takes to read a comic if you're going to take your time, especially these 17-page things that we're getting here in the 70s. But this was almost perfect. What made it work best was that I ended up going and switching tracks, not just starting it and listening to it as it's going. So I switched tracks and there's some exciting, you know, in the movie, there's music that fits the exciting dino conflict and moments of wonder, you know, that that Spielbergian wonder that they were trying to emulate in Jurassic World. And Michael Giacchino, he does a good job emulating John Williams. Um, I think in the Ben's Bullpen Bulletin section, I, I was, I've been thinking ahead. John Carter is pretty easy, what I'm going to listen to with that. But I've been thinking ahead to Machine Man and Devil Dinosaur, what I'm going to listen to with those. And and I, I've got a good idea, and I think it's going to fit nicely. And it's it's where uh, Michael Giacino was trying to be uh, not just taking themes that John Williams created with Jurassic Park to use in Jurassic World, but where he actually was just trying to figure out what would John Williams do if he was doing this this particular score. Anyway, it was a good fit because this comic has moments of dino conflict and great wonder. And I, well, let's, let's just start talking about the story. I guess uh, we open with an adventurous splash page. And then there's an action scene that follows where Mark is swimming in the depths of a lake at the top of the world, so to speak with this, uh, this uh, it's a, a lost world type of scenario where they have found this place that no one knows about. There's jungle and there's dinosaurs and, and all that kind of thing. It's a lost world. He's tethered by that collar. It's a shock collar and the tether, the cable that's actually holding him is actually what delivers the shock as well. And if he doesn't do what he's asked to do by score, they're going to activate the shock. And uh, so this is nice because then when the ichthyosaur comes after him, um, he would normally be able to escape pretty easily because he is a powerful swimmer. He's lithe. He's small, smaller than the ichthyosaur, and there's plenty of places to hide. But with that collar, he can't swim around and through things, and it's holding him back. And it's kind of cool, kind of a, a cool little scene there, nice little um, roadblock to to uh, Mark's, Mark's own powers. And I, I feel like also the artwork – uh, that Robbins has done some course correction here. I feel like the swimming action reflects what the show would do if it could feels realistic, but also is drawn dynamically and, and uh, with that comic book feel uh, and they're doing things. They're throwing things into the mix that the TV show could never do like dinosaurs. Uh, the, the show in the seventies on a prime time <laughs> Friday evening or whatever budget uh, you're not going to be able to do that week to week. You're not even going to be able to do that, you know, once a season. And and you're not going to be able to do it and make it look good. I mean, it's either going to be stop motion animation like Land of the Lost or a man in a suit like Godzilla. And neither of those would look good at all underwater, especially with those 70 special effects. So nice. I, I have to say Bill Mantlo does a great job here taking the show, uh, the premise of the show and the spirit of the show. Uh, but then taking this story to places where it needs to go and can go and can do things that the show never could do unless, like I said, it was stop motion or a man in a suit 
or they could take the route that they did with that rushing water thing that they did and just make them be invisible dinosaurs. I guess they could go that direction. But, you know, in the comic book, you don't have a budget. That used to be a, a big selling point for why would you do a story as in comics form. It's because you can tell stories that you couldn't tell visually uh, anywhere else um, other than, you know, in, in, say, I guess an illustration or something like that. But, you know, a movie or... Uh, it would be cost prohibitive for a movie or, or a TV show. Anyway, it's an exciting opening. So Mark takes care of things. He, obviously, he survives, and he goes back up to Scorba and tells him he needs to be let off the leash if he's going to find anything down there. So they, they do, but they leave him with the threat that they'll attack and destroy his friends if he does anything to try to escape. So he's still on a leash. Uh, he's just not on a, a literal leash. It's, it's that metaphorical you know, bad guy threat. He goes under again, and actually while he goes under, uh, Scorba's ship gets attacked by another water uh, dinosaur thing. But Mark doesn't know, and Mark doesn't care. Uh, he's interested in finding out what they finding what they want him to find. I don't know if they know exactly what's down there. They just know something in, special is down there, and they're sending him down. And there's a great page of him just exploring his environment using his enhanced underwater senses kind of thing. Uh, this page alone, in some ways... Uh, kind of redeems Bill Mantlo uh, from the human fly this month. Uh, again, I love some of the things Bill Mantlo has done, and I've read some of the things that I'm going to be covering, uh, but I haven't read it in such a long time. But this is, you know, in the, in the far off future, if I get to it, that Bill Mantlo, he wrote some of the most amazing, considering the constraints he had, stories. And human fly, it ain't that, you know. <laughs> But with with this, you know, this page here, it's just a great practical page of Mark doing what he does. He um, he swims, but then they show a close up of his eyes as he's looking through the dark waters. And they they do a close up of his nose as he smells and uh, they do a close up of his tongue as he actually tastes the water. And then they show his hand reaching out to feel the warm currents and he uses all this to find an underwater cavern and yes it is a little bit on the nose i mean literally one of the panels is of his nose but it's a nice moment where you actually just get to see him being an underwater being now the tv show did do a scene similar to this where he was discovering an underwater cavern and actually it was an underwater cavern that had been used by some some culture in in years and years past but again, they could never have done this on a 1970s soundstage. They might have been able to do some sort of cheap in-camera tricks with models to do. I mean, they, they did this kind of thing with Star Trek and matte paintings and that kind of thing. So they might have been able to do it with that. But it wouldn't have been as effective, I don't think. It definitely wouldn't have been as, as effective as this because when once you cut to a model – or, you know, little people against a green screen. Again, we're talking 70s science fiction special effects. We're not talking about today. But, you know, it just takes you out once they move to a special effects shot. And in the comic book, there is no being taken out. If they'd switched artists, maybe you'd be taken out of it. But they, they don't. This is all Frank Robbins. And so he walks into this place and it's huge. It's big. It's, an, it's a dead city in a cave and it looks like it could be Atlantis. Now this is kind of an exciting prospect, but you know, as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, well, that's neat. But you know, 
they can't reveal his origins in a comic book. Um, or could they? I mean, maybe they could when the show was still going, or maybe they rather couldn't while the show was still going. But was the show still going? Again, more on that in a moment. And he finds a dead king then, a skeleton on a throne wearing a crown. And is this one of Mark Harris's ancestors? I mean, the comic is able to present things here as if it is something you can question and possibly think about. The comic book definitely wants you to think about, are these people from Mark Harris's ancestors or whatever? But they can't make those answers. They can't give you those answers. Um, So, well, since we don't get any other answer, uh, as far as I know from the show, you know, maybe the comic book could be taken to be, you know, Mark's Mark's background. Who knows? Anyway, he sees this dead king, a skeleton on the throne. He's wearing the crown. He reaches for the crown then. And a spear flies by Mark Harris as he reaches for the crown. He's being attacked by someone who looks like she's um, Red Sonia on her way to the Greek forum or something like that uh, or the, the Roman forum or whatever it is. Uh, and she has two really mean looking dogs with her Two just kind of, I'm not sure if they're meant to be Doberman pinchers. They're a little off. Uh, they aren't necessarily meant to be realistic dogs. I don't know if they're meant to be any kind of breed because of what they end up uh, being, but he's being attacked by this mysterious woman who has, you know, seems to live there or be, you know, this is her home. Meanwhile, Elizabeth and Mark's other friends from the Institute are using their submarine to look for Mark. And this is where, you know, I could have done without this, but, you know, whatever. This is setting up things for the future because a person is caught on radar swimming toward them, or at least a small thing is swimming toward them. And it can't be Mark. We know that, but they don't know that. So they rush to see who it is. And we don't see who it is then. We just see them reacting and looking and seeing this person. And they think it's Mark, but then we get the dialogue from this mysterious person. Mark, who's he? A bore, no doubt. Certainly not so much fun as little old me. <laughs> and I'm just kind of left shaking my head like, what? <laughs> what is this right now? And then the, there's even a caption that says a mystery to be saved until next ish. So, like I said, setting up the future. Meanwhile, Mark finds the treasure Scorba wants, and we find out that a pirate has come before and died, and the woman and Mark struggle as he's looking at the treasure, and she's worried about his intentions, and she actually, I mean, she implies that the pirate came, and his intentions were not just about the treasure. Uh, Mark says he just wants to take the treasure and deliver it because, you know, his friends are in danger, and she says, you lie! We slew a pirate here only a week ago. He too said he was only wanting the treasure, but the look that came into his eyes when he laid his filthy hands on me told me that he spoke false. And like, yikes, this is, this is kind of heavy. I mean, is she implying that he was trying to, to rape her? I, I think he, I think she is. I think that's exactly what she's saying. And that's not good and very interesting. I mean, it's very subtle. As a kid, I would never have known what they were talking about. As a young teenager, I might not have even been able to figure out what they were talking about. But now I'm just like, wow, okay, they, they went there. And so then where, while they're still struggling, Mark says to her, um, he's trying to comfort her. And he says, that look is not in my eyes. Um, because, you know, he is our hero. He has good intentions. He just wants the treasure. It's surprising that they're having this struggle 
And it's not about the treasure at all. It's about this other thing. And then their struggle is interrupted by the dogs who talk. And one of them says, uh, unhand her, man. Move aside and let us have him. And then the other dog says, Sirius, must, must we kill him as we did the pirate? And then Mark Harris says exactly what I said after I read this. The dogs, they are talking. Um, and this might have been a good place to do a show, don't tell kind of thing. Mark didn't have to say that. We could see the dogs were talking. The captions, or the, the word balloons, I should say, the tails were pointing exactly where they needed to be for us to understand. Uh, and so speaking of the dogs, there's not much of a space theme here, as I have said you know, I was you know, putting these all into this kind of, you know, they're all dealing with space or whatever. But if I were one to stretch things to fit my agenda, and I am, uh, the dogs are named Cassiopeia and Sirius. And both of those are figures from mythology. And both of those are constellations. So boom. Space. And also, maybe I should wait until I do Ben's Bullpen Bulletin after I've read all of these. And when I do that, then I can announce uh, <laughs> the unity tie that binds the comics of the month. Anyway, uh, the writing seems to be on the wall for Mark Harris, not just with the dogs, but also this issue. It hits stands on April 18th, 1978, which was the same day, episode 10 of the first real season hit the airwaves on NBC April 18th 1978 the previous episode to air was December 13th of 1977 then on the letters page they actually talk about how NBC has canceled the series episode 10 through 12 aired over this week and then the next two weeks uh, and then episode 13 wouldn't air until June so they did burn off all the produced episodes eventually but they knew they knew that they were going to be canceled or that the the tv show had been canceled i should say the question is did they think they were going to continue past the show and i don't know in the pages of the human fly after his disastrous stunt attempt they did they continued and they knew they were continuing because of the rock music career or something here who knows um We'll find out more next issue, which I actually believe is the last issue of of uh, Man from Atlantis. Uh, anyway, the letters page actually gets a little bit snarky um, in the letter where they address the cancellation. Someone mentions, you know, um, they did this on the show and you didn't even do this until, you know, and you haven't even done it yet. As far as like character movement or character development or someone moving off from the show or getting a, a promotion. And and they're like, well, you know. They're working on the show, you know, months and months ahead of time. And and so they're but they're doing one episode per week and we have to keep up with that. And we're working ahead, but we're doing one issue per month. And I just understand. Like, OK, it just it just felt a little a little bit snarky. Anyway, this story itself has so much premise, but really only has promise if they are able to take things where comic adaptations are not necessarily allowed to go, like exploring the backstory of Mark Harris. And with the knowledge that the show had been canceled, perhaps they would be able to try that. But then I think the scripting for the next few issues um, was done, and this even, was done long before they knew because they mentioned the cancellation in the editorial copy, 
which could be, you know, just put on a page right before they go to print. But as far as the scripting process and the drawing process and the lettering process and all of that, they are working on this long ahead of time. So uh, perhaps they they knew, but this exploration of that possible connection to Mark's Atlantis connection, I, I don't think it's going to count for much at all. But I have to say kudos to Bill Mantlo in this issue. Uh, he kept the spirit of the show, but went to places where the show could not go. And that was nice. That was it's good. It's been a good run. We'll see. I think, like I said, last the next issue is the last. So, uh, the next segment we're going to be talking about uh, uh, John Carter, Warlord of Mars. So, John Carter, Warlord of Mars. This issue uh, hit the stands. Let's see here. I. Uh, lost my notes but uh and in my notes it doesn't even tell when it hit the stands but i'm going to <laughs> go out on a limb and say that it hit in april 1978 i just don't have the date uh and i'm not gonna it doesn't really matter right now does it all that matters is that we are talking about john carter we are talking about the warlord of mars and we are talking about the end chapter to a uh, well, three issue series basically here. And, uh, you know, it's called tonight is the night helium dies. <clears throat> uh, that's what it says on the inside on the cover. It says, this is the day helium died. Uh, it seems like we have some discrepancies here. Was it night? Was it day? Which one's correct? Who knows? Uh, it really, it's just, they're, they're just trying to confuse us, I think. So anyway, uh, before I start, let's talk about the Michael G Giacino soundtrack that i listened to while reading john carter world of mars number 14 well it was john carter from the movie john carter and did it fit oh yeah it fit i love this soundtrack i've talked about it before i think so i'm not going to talk about it too much longer i love this soundtrack it is exciting it is adventurous and it fits the movie perfectly and i'm one of those people i will be on the record and i will fight to the death Anyone who disagrees, okay, well, not really, but um, if, I guess if I was John Carter, I would. I'm not John Carter, but I really liked that movie. I, I really, really liked that movie. In fact, I want to watch it again sometime soon when I when I get a chance. I just have so much stuff that I'm watching for Welcome to Level 7 where it's, it's, it's business. I have to watch it because it's business. It's business I enjoy, but uh, I just don't have the time to watch some of these superfluous things like John Carter. So... Maybe sometime soon, maybe sometime soon, but maybe I don't need to. I mean, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm, I'm reading this, and I'm really enjoying these comics as well. And since uh, this is that third chapter, but it's the end of a story arc, as I've said before, I like to do recommendations based on story arcs, especially if it's a longer one. And, you know, would I recommend this story arc? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that at the end here. First, our team. Our creative team, writers, Marv Wolfman. Penciler, Kymarin Infantino. Inker, Rudy D. Nebrez. Letterer, ja James R. Novak. Colorist, Francois Mouly. And just, I'm just going to jump into the story here. There's, well, let, let's just jump into it. The story is this. Tars Tarkas is unconscious he's, from his wounds that he sustained while he was fighting John Carter. Uh, because Tars Tarkas was taken over 
by a zombie rotting corpse magic guy. And John Carter, uh, that same rotting walking dead corpse magic guy embedded uh, John Carter into a stone wall while buildings from the city were falling around them. And meanwhile, Deja Thoris is with Tars Tarkas's daughter and Kantos Khan and Grog are out there. They're, they're going to fight in undead people. And uh, it turns out that the long dead skeleton warriors who make up the army that's following Zuvan Dark, uh, they have a power. And that power is to zap living people with their eye beams and take the living people's flesh and form it onto their bones and basically trading places with their victim. So the victim is left as a dead skeleton, uh, just not a living dead skeleton. And the the dead skeleton thing then has the appearance of the person that they attacked. Unfortunately, as I summarize the plot that's coming up here, uh, it's going to feel a little fast and thin. And that's because... Uh, it is fast and thin. It's not because it's just a summary. There, it's a thin plot, and things happen because they need to happen, and then they, so they just happen. It's just this happens, then this happens, then this happens, and there's not a lot of real reason given to some of this stuff. For example, John Carter, he is completely out of the climax, and I, I don't understand the storytelling choice there. Uh, also, another example: Tars Tarkas needs to be woken up. And so they spend all this time talking about how the doctors can't get him to wake up, can't get him to wake up, can't get him to wake up in this own in this very issue. They can't get him to wake up. But two warriors come by, Cantos uh, Can and Grog, and they just pick up a machine that happened to be laying near Tars Tarkas and they say, "Well, it was laying here. The doctors probably intended to use it." Now, if the doctors intended to use it, I don't know why they would think the, the doctors had maybe had already tried or not. Uh, they they don't seem to think that the doctors had tried, but they assume the doctors want it to be used on him. They don't know how to use it, but they put it on Tars Tarkas and it wakes him up. Done. Check. Done. And then you know, Zuvan Dark, he tries to kill John Carter, leaves him for dead after embedding him in the wall and then making all the buildings fall around him. But then uh, when John Carter shows up to fight him again, because he's not dead, he was protected by the wall he was embedded in. Uh, he turns around and basically it seemed like his plan all along was to use the eye beams, take John Carter's body and trade. And so John Carter becomes this rotting fleshy corpse thing. And the rotting fleshy corpse guy becomes John Carter. Like I said, this seems to be his plan all along, but I, I just don't understand why he didn't, he do this earlier. I mean, he had powers earlier now, this is just a new power that's popped up, and so he's using it now. But, you know, he had John Carter in the desert for weeks, it seemed like, and had him at his mercy, and you know, all last issue. And, and then he tried to kill John Carter just moments ago. It's like, oh, my plan is to take your body, and I need it alive, but first I'm going to try to kill you. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And I, I have a feeling that this is going to sound like I'm nitpicking against this issue and that I'm not enjoying this issue. But that's not the truth. But the truth is there are a lot of things to – there's a lot of nits to pick, let's say. 
Uh, so we leave John Carter as the fleshy guy dead. He's not walking dead. He's just dead, dead. And we find that there's actually another motivation for what Zuvin Dark is doing. He's not just doing this for revenge. He's not just doing this because he's evil. He wants to raise his former lover from the dead because she sacrificed herself to the dark gods to help Zuvan Dark get this power. And now he's going to switch her dead body with Deja Thoris. So then Zuvan and his lover can live once more in new perfect bodies. Great. He does it. And they're about to, you know, live happily ever after and wander off into the Martian sunset. But then Cantus Can rushes in, throws a sword, kills Zuvan and, and Deja Thoris reverse normal. And Zuvan is just dead, just like that. And then they fight the remaining skeleton warriors. The end. And <laughs> I can't help feeling this is just not a very good wrap-up to this storyline. It feels like Marv Wolfman might have wrote himself into a corner, or maybe he was writing this and making it up as he went along with only a loose idea of where he was going. Because he sets up things like Zuvan Dark trying to kill John Carter and then pays them off with a completely different thing, like Zuvan Dark wanted to get John Carter's body all along. There's also one, There's, I mean, it's the 70s, so there's a lot of captioning and there's a lot of telling and not showing or telling and showing at the same time. Uh, but this one, there's one element here that just is a kind of a pet peeve for me because it's not part of the storytelling language that Marv Wolfman or whoever the, the letterer has been, uh, have, have been using up until this point. And that's where they have a caption that actually has like an arm that reaches down to point at the thing the caption is talking about. Like, don't make me make sure you don't miss this. You do not want to miss this. And it just, uh, The hand reaches down and points at the thing. And in this case, it's their deadly eye blasts felled the valiant citizens of helium. And it points at a skeleton's face with deadly eye blasts felling a citizen, a citizen of, of helium. And again, this is one of those. You do not need that. It is there. Captions should be used to explain things that aren't able to be understood from the art alone or to add a new dimension, a new element of information beyond what's there you know and and this is nope we're just gonna say that's the thing that we're talking about here's a finger that's pointing at it and there it is again you're seeing it after we just put it into words uh yeah so and then the other thing is the climax uh it's it's an anti-climax kind of uh cantos can just throws his sword kills zuvan dark and then deja thoris is restored and then we find out that John Carter was restored too. Yay. John Carter doesn't get to have his final showdown. Cantos can, I guess, has just as much of a reason to go after uh, Zuvan Dark. He was dragged with John Carter with uh, out in the desert the last issue, but he doesn't have John Carter's super strength uh, to, to help sustain him. But um, it's just, uh, wow. Okay, we're done. Well, I guess that's it. I thought there was another issue coming when we get to you know just a few pages left and you know john carter's still dead or whatever or you know still embodying an an undead creature um yeah so then you also have just you know after the battle with the skeleton warriors is done it's just here's john carter he's back and the implication is that the people of helium are there as well um but yeah i will say this the helium this is the day helium died or this is the night helium died uh 
it's it happens. I mean, the city gets razzed or raised. The city gets raised, uh, R A Z E D, not raised up, but it gets destroyed, <laughs> and uh, the people are turned into skeletons. And I think the implication is that once the skeletons are dead, or once the magic is gone from Zuvandark, once he's killed, that they're going to turn back. But man, uh, they they the hype was there, and they they tried to live up to it. But now. If the climax of Zuvandark getting killed is an anticlimax, the post climax, I really, really liked. It's frame worthy. It's just one page describing a huge battle. And I love that one page. It is one page with two panels and four captions. Reading from those captions, what ensues is a battle glorious, one that will be inscribed in the histories of Barsoom. Three men, one woman, outnumbered 50 to 1, battle a legion of the unliving. But they do more than merely battle. They fight for a cause. They fight for a right. And still more, they fight to win. And for four such valiant souls, victory cannot be denied them for long. And the two panels that it's it's great. It's It's just really, it's... It's pulpy. It's muscular. It's the kind of thing I've been talking about before with this. But uh, Tars Tarkas crushes some skeleton warriors while behind him Grog and Kantos Can and Dejah Thoris battle with their swords. That's the first panel. Then the second panel is the aftermath of the battle. And they stand and they're still tense and they're still poised. But there's an air of relief as just kind of a breeze passes over the battlefield. And the battle is done. The battle is won. And Dejah Thoris, she stands victorious and glorious. And her hair of flying in the wind and the little flappy things that hang from the belt that's not quite a dress because there's one in the front one in the back i don't know what you call it uh but they're they're flapping in the wind too and there's a heap of skeleton bones at their feet and it's very you know dramatic and it's just capturing that perfect moment in time so with all that said here for all its flaws, this was still an exciting read with fantastic art. It just didn't feel as fleshed out as some of the other stuff that we, we get from Marv Wolfman and John Carter, Warlord of Mars. Uh, you know, it feels like if this was, <laughs> it's not as fleshed out. So uh, if this was a person, this would be a skeleton person with flesh hastily pasted onto it because it has magic eye beams. It still moves and acts and is a fierce warrior. Uh, but it's just not quite the same. So, yeah, I do recommend this arc. You know, the the things leading up to the climax make it worth reading. The climax just is an ending that has to be there because they needed an ending for all this stuff that was happening. And, yeah, also the space through line of this month's coverage for July 1978. It's pretty obvious. Mars. There. Boom. Done. So next issue uh, it's called the history horrors. Very curious what this means. I looked at the cover and it's one of those where they cross off something on the logo. Instead of saying John Carter, warlord of Mars, they've crossed off Mars and it says John Carter, warlord of earth. So I'm kind of excited. The next segment, however, is going to be Ben's bullpen bulletin, which will cover the ads and editorial copy of this month's books. And also touch on machine man Devil Dinosaur, issue number four for both of those. So let's get started with this segment. And we're going to start this segment off with Machine Man. And the I'm just going to keep 
keep it going with the whole Michael Giacchino thing. Uh, what was I listening to when I read Machine Man that was by Michael Giacchino? I listened to the Tomorrowland soundtrack, which makes sense because it's uh, Living Robots, Machine Man, and then that little girl robot uh, living in not just the near future, but what I want to call the now future. The future is now. And it worked. It, it, it was nice. Tomorrowland, great soundtrack. Definitely feels like Michael Giacchino is, is kind of just channeling John Williams and, and what he's doing there. It's great. I, I really, really enjoyed the soundtrack. In fact, as soon as I saw the movie, I went home and bought the soundtrack. It was just that that good. I liked it that much. So this issue, Machine Man number four, is entitled Battle on a Busy Street and cover date July 1978, on sale date April 1978, cover price 35 cents, like all the comics we've been talking about this issue, this this uh, month. Uh, the story, uh, the editor is Jack Kirby. The writer, the penciler is Jack Kirby. The inker and letterer is Mike W. Royer. And the colorist is Petra Scotes. And so, yeah, just quickly, in a nutshell, the, the soldiers that were chasing after Machine Man, they end up battling the alien that Machine Man brought when he rescued that alien who from falling into the sun. And Machine Man... He has to repair himself from the alien's attack, and once he does, he rushes to help, and he comes too late. The battle's done, and he he wants to help, but there's all these soldiers patched up, and they're, they've got their arms in slings. They've got bandages on their heads. He still wants to help. He runs into the city, but the calls to kill the machine man make him once more feel like a cast-off, like a lesser being. He's just a hunk of metal. Then he has a vision of his father, and that forces him to confront is he more than just metal and i would suggest that because he's having a vision of his father uh and having this moral debate that yes he he is more than that but he doesn't recognize that he just thinks it's you know electronic impulses in his electronic brain that's being brought back into light and, and but no it's imagination he it's imagination he he's more than just a machine if he's able to imagine so he ends up you know, choosing to go into battle. He actually rips off his face and throws it away and then brings it and puts it back on. And he goes into the city and goes into the battle with uh, 10-4. Again, it's spelled T-E-N, like the number, F-O-R, like it's four something, uh, not F-O-U-R, like the number. So it is, it's kind of weird. But um, he... He fights him. They go into battle. There's some nice Kirby moments. There's actually a moment where he teleports himself. And that has some nice Kirby um, ideas to it. And as far as the way he does line work and makes it look like there's a flash of light and the passage of time as well. This, you know, Kirby, it feels like he's doing some experimentation here. The battle ends with 10-4 taking control of the people on a city street before Machine Man is able to send him back through the dimensional portal or whatever it was that he used to bring him there. Those people will get sucked in with him. And we saw it last issue. We saw things from the, the room where they were, the phone and stuff like that, getting pulled in as they were pulled in as well to this portal. And so uh, not only can uh, Machine Man not do anything about that, um, 10-4 has called the fleet. He's called in his his brother machine guys to come. And so the fleet's coming. The bad guys are coming. And 
You want that idea of space? It's pretty easy when you have an invading alien from space summoning through space his other invading alien buddies from space. There's a lot of space stuff going on here. There's also a lot of kind of cool Kirby dialogue where um, when they see the bad guy monster alien in the streets, someone says, either that bird's an ad for a new science fiction movie or there's a comics convention in town. And it just kind of, that just struck me as funny. So, yeah, so you have some ideas going on here. There's no essay this time, uh, but there is the vision of his father as he debates if he's human or machine or what proves that he's more than machine. And then the machine itself that comes across uh, that fights machine, man, it is a machine being. It's not, it doesn't seem to have any kind of fleshy alien bits to him he's just a 100 machine and this machine is saying oh, i've i've heard of robots like you that serve you know fleshy beings or whatever and so there, there's some ideas he, he he's still trying to play with these ideas and i really appreciate what jack kirby is trying to do he's trying to do a superhero adventure story with subtle ideas about what it means to be a person and and I, I appreciate that as much as he's doing all the bombastic artwork stuff that's just kind of big and broad and, you know, dynamic. He's trying to do subtle human sci-fi stories with it. And you, you got to you got to respect that. You got to respect that he's not just resting on his laurels. Uh, oh, in place of the essay, uh, there's an ad for. Uh, half page for Robert E. Howard and his three characters call Conan and Red Sonia. And then there's another half page ad underneath that for Edgar Rice Burroughs and Tarzan and John Carter. That was kind of cool. And then it says next issue for one breathless, horrifying moment. Earth's only shield against Holocaust is the non-hero. And I'm just going to place some money on it right now. I'm guessing the non-hero is Machine Man. I don't know. So I will say this, there's a collection coming of Machine Man comics. And if I was reading these because I borrowed them from someone, I would purchase that collection. But since I'm not, I'm reading issues I already have. I don't think I'm going to find myself wanting to have you know Machine Man on my shelf necessarily next to my Devil Dinosaur Omnibus. Speaking of my Devil Dinosaur Omnibus, which came out in 2000 seven i think and that was the last time i read it and there's still some memorable things and the memorable things came from this issue and next uh this is devil dinosaur number four and the title is object in the sky and again editor jack kirby writer penciler jack kirby inker and letterer mike w royer and the colorist is petra scotes and in this issue um moon boy uh, dreams of unspeakable Kirby-drawn horrors, and they are Kirby, you know, multi-dimensional beings made of space and blackness and eyeballs and stuff, and they're attacking. And he wakes up to find that a thing has dropped from the sky. It's a UFO with technologically advanced aliens, and they're going to do some experiments or something. And they plan to kill or capture everything in the area, and they they uh, actually end up coming into conflict with devil dinosaur knock him unconscious and under some rocks and moon boys captured and other people from the tribe are captured and other people from the tribe are killed. They actually, 
I, I'm surprised, you know, considering this was meant to be like a Saturday morning cartoon concept. There's a lot of dead dinosaurs shown and even some, some dead tribes people, uh, the cave people. And so uh, two of the tribesmen, uh, Stonehand and Whitehairs, they escape and they try to help Devil Dinosaur so that he can fight the aliens. Uh, now, of course, Devil Dinosaur, he don't need no help getting revived. He gets up and he he fights and with Stonehand's help, they actually take down and kill one of the aliens. And then these two cavemen, they follow Devil Dinosaur. And he has a plan. And his plan is to go to the Tower of Death. And next issue, apparently they go to the Tower of Death. It says, don't miss the shattering climax. It's the hairiest trip ever. Yeah, you heard me right. I said, it's the hairiest trip ever. Uh I just don't have a very hip vocabulary from the seventies apparently, but that meant something. <laughs> and it says the title will be journey to the center of the ants. I remember reading about ants when I read John Carter last, whatever, you know, seven, six years ago. So, uh, I will throw this out there. Um, when they kill the alien devil dinosaur stomps on the alien and the sound effects are bonk, bonk, bonk. Um, I felt like I was in, you know, reading this. I, I feel like I'm in the middle of that, that episode of Star Trek where all the kids are, you know, they, they don't let any adults. And, and there's, there's the disease where they're all like bonk, 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 bonk. And it's really scary and intimidating. But in this comic book, it feels kind of childish, especially weird considering you just saw all these you know dead and dying dinosaurs. But the other thing I noticed was kind of how this ties into the Godzilla here that we were talking about or that I was talking about anyway. Uh, the idea of survival and that survival instinct that I talked about when I was getting on my my uh, my high horse or my my soapbox or whatever. It's, it's here in full force, but they are surviving in community and it's community that allows them to survive better. And so I just found that interesting. Then there is an essay in this one. And the essay, uh, just a couple choice quotes here. Uh, the essay is called Dinosaurs as Devils and Moon Boys as Primitives. And in it, Jack Kirby complains about the caricature of dinosaurs being uh, instant and constant enemies. And then he says, my guess is that every living creature is capable of an intelligent and compassionate move. Yes, even a man-eating shark has been known to release its prey for reasons unknown to us. Ask any scuba diver who still treasures his foot, despite the ugly teeth marks still in his skin. And uh, Jack Kirby, I know you're no longer here that I, I can't write to you a letter in response to this. But, dude, I don't think the shark is letting go of the scuba diver because he's feeling compassion for his lunch. And he really actually does. Uh, Jack Kirby seems to be arguing against my Godzilla rant about animals and humans. He says, we reserve humanity only for ourselves and see little or no reflection of it in other creatures. And I was just talking about how there is a difference between us and animals. And there's more, but, you know, the book's available. You have to get the book. Anyway, uh, reading this, this is definitely absolutely a continuation of the ideas and thoughts that Kirby was having in 2001. And reading this made me want to go back and read some of those again. And I probably will soon. I did just I did just dig them out. So ads in this issue invite you to grow muscles. 
Ads in this issue invite you to ride Parker Rider Skateboards by Nash. Uh, they invite you to satisfy your meat tooth with Slim Jim. It's the one with the vampire. They invite you to introduce grit to friends and neighbors and get prizes. They invite you to win free bikes and burgers and candy bars with Sugar Daddy and Sugar Babies and Sugar Mama. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a candy called Sugar, sugar Mama. All I'll say about that is it can't be worse than Sugar Daddies. Those are the stupidest candy ever. It's just hard to chew caramel on a stick. Hated it. Hate it to this day. It's sticking your teeth. You're trying. Ah, dumb, dumb candy. Actually, dumb dums are a real candy, but um, you know what I mean. Anyway, uh, they invite you to buy Marvel Comics or also buy a really awesome looking Marvel pad of paper featuring the classic model art of the superheroes and their headshots. They invite you to get pizzazz, which still looks pretty unexciting. And they say that it's exciting and cool. And they actually, in this one, they invite you to join this gamble. You can get six months of your favorite comic if you don't love pizzazz. That's great. Uh, there are flea market pages, including uh, one in the flea market page. There's one ad for a weekly newspaper co- for comic book fans called The Buyer's Guide. Uh, Spider-Man meets the home wrecker in the hostess ad. Now I thought that Madam Webb, who was just throwing herself at Spider-Man was really the home wrecker, if you know what I mean. But uh, this home wrecker is a guy who actually has a wrecking ball and he's actually wrecking literal homes. And it's kind of, you know, only in a hostess ad. And then there's Rick Barry, Rick Barry and Dr. J um, shilling in a comic book form for uh, basketballs. Uh, some other Marvel related upcoming books, the Beatles, uh, Marvel super special. Number four tells the story of the Beatles from the beginning to the final breakup. Uh, Archie Goodwin this month, he's leaving as editor in chief to focus on writing and Jim Shooter is taking over as the editor. Uh, amazing Spider-Man is going to be a regular primetime show along with incredible Hulk. Uh, amazing Spider-Man didn't last as long as man from Atlantis. I'll say, and they also mentioned that a Savage Submariner is in the works as a TV show. And then the Doctor Strange special will be airing soon. Um, Savage Submariner in the works, I'm sorry to say, not for long, considering what happened with Man from Atlantis. That's one thing I do know. Man from Atlantis kind of killed any, <laughs> any momentum on a Submariner TV show. And then I found this interesting. One of the items on the bullpen bulletin was uh, they talk about the controversy is still rife over the pronunciation of the leader of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Is it Magneto or Magneto? And and they say even Stan can't remember his intentions. Finally, there is an ad for a a four-page ad for a Clark Bar Bar contest. Man, this is the kind of thing that if you won, I'd be so jealous. First page, huge letters. Stop the presses. It's the famous Clark Bar superhero sweepstakes. And there's a hand punching through the page holding a Clark Bar. And then uh, there's there's the picture of Spider-Man getting ready to shoot webs with Hulk standing behind him with his hand gently on his shoulder as if to say, hey, buddy, we're in this together. And behind that is a smiling thing and Captain America and Red Sonya with her sword. She's there. She's not smiling. She looks pretty vicious. Um, that's weird. But anyway, it says you could win a trip to Gotham 
and appear in a superhero comic book. Be a winner all year round with rappers from famous Clark bars. And okay, it says all you characters out there, here's your big chance to be a real character, comic book style. You don't have to buy anything or do anything. It's a mail us the famous Clark bar superhero sweepstakes entry blank with your name and address. To find out what could be in it for you, just read on. First prize. First prize is they will take you to New York City, you and your family, to New York City and back. Stay there for three days, two nights, all expenses paid. Get a tour of the Marvel Comics offices so an artist can draw you into an upcoming issue of your favorite Marvel comic book. And you can see the Statue of Liberty, take boat rides, boat rides. And when your comic book adventure is published, we'll send you 15 copies for your family and friends. They'll be proud to know a famous person like you. Second prize is uh, you'll get your own famous superhero watch. You can pick from Batman, Wonder Woman, Superman, Spider-Man, or the Joker. Swiss made would normally sell for $19.95 to $23.95. This is quite a deal. Third prize, 103rd prize winners. They'll send you a year's subscription of your favorite DC or Marvel comic book. The Incredible Hulk, Ms. Marvel, Green Lantern, Thor, Justice Society, Captain America, Red Sonja, Plastic Man, Wonder Woman, you name it, even little Lulu. So if you find your so find yourself a pen or pencil, fill the entry blank, and mail it by November 1st, 1978. And then be a winner all year round. There's an order blank where you can get stuff with uh you have to have wrappers and money, kind of like what they did with uh Bazooka Joe Bubblegum. You can get Frisbees with Batman, Superman, or Spider-Man. There's flashlights with Superman, Batman, Robin, Wonder Woman. And there's superhero stickers. The one that's on the front actually has a um, Shazam, Shazam Captain Marvel character on there. But um, there's a super kite with Spider-Man on it. And super parachutes with Superman, Batman, or Spider-Man. Radio-controlled vehicle, Batmobile, or Spider-Man's car. The Batman utility belt or the Spider-Man utility belt. Uh, it's all toys. I've seen a lot of these toys, actually. I think my friend, or my cousin, rather, had the Superman lamp. I'm not sure, but you can get Batman, Wonder Woman, or Superman. It's interesting because this is definitely split down the middle. This is a Marvel and DC thing. But, um, yeah, wow. What a thing. What a What a contest. What a country, as they say. Anyway, that wraps up this month, and I appreciate you listening and, and sticking with me here to uh, talk about these Marvel comics, and I'm enjoying myself reading them, so I'm going to continue reading them, and next month, uh, I'll be doing the same thing, Star Wars, Human Fly, Man from Atlantis, we'll see what happens with that, and yeah, so I guess really at this point, uh, the only thing I can think of to say is thank you for listening. And then, of course, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter where you're going, I just want to wish you Godspeed. Star Wars
Just give me those Star Wars. Nothing but Star Wars. Don't let them Star Wars. Those are Star Wars. Talking about Star Wars on a podcast. I'm Ryan Daly, and welcome to... And I'm the Irredeemable Shag. Dude, what are you doing? What? Give me those Star Wars as my show. Well, you're part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, so it's really our show. But if you show up on the promo, people will think you're the co-host. I'm not? No, the show will have rotating guests. You just took that idea from my Justice League International podcast. You took that idea from my Secret Origins podcast. And you took that idea from Dead Both and Spies. That was my podcast. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I sang the theme song with you. So? So, technically, I appear on every episode. I'm part of the foundation of this new Star Wars show. That's... that's true. So, you want to take this from the top, or what? (sighs) I'm Ryan Daly. Join me and a galaxy of guest stars on Give Me Those... Including the irredeemable Shag, whose voice you will technically hear on every episode. On Give Me Those Star Wars. The official Star Wars show of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Available on iTunes and Stitcher and at fireandwaterpodcast.com.